Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for some. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. I'm your host, Bill Real. You can email me at realmormon at gmail.com, R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also find us, uh, this podcast, at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. So that's Mormon Discussion, one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com as well as on iTunes, uh, under the name of Mormon Discussion. Kind of a neat piece of information. I just did an interview with FAIR last week. It should uh, it should show up uh, on the uh, fairblog.org website, I'm thinking sometime on Wednesday. And so you can look forward to seeing that there. It is part of the Keeping the Faith series, which is essentially to look at individuals who have had faith crises in the past, to try to find out what contributed to those and what it was that helped them come out of them. And so the the episode is very uh, one-sided in the sense that I don't share a lot of the other things going on with me at church during my, my time in the church, but you do get a real feel for uh, the anxiety that takes place during a faith crisis. As I was contemplating that interview, it led me to uh, decide on the topic for this week which is the assumptions and um, expectations that we hold within the church that lead to or contribute to a faith crisis. And so I hope that we can maybe go through this list of these and talk a little bit about each of them. And so the, the first one I wanted to talk about is that prophets... These, now, these would be false assumptions that we hold as members of the church. The first one, prophets and apostles are infallible. Now... We sometimes hear leaders in the church stand up and say, you know, I make mistakes too, or I'm, I'm a flawed human being, and none of us are perfect. And we sometimes think that that is just a matter of being self-deprecating, just to, just to show the, the people around them they're being a little humble. But the fact is, is that leaders are imperfect, and they do make mistakes. I think this assumption comes from a tendency in the church that we tend to teach if the prophet says something or if an apostle says something, it's true and I have to follow it. And I do think some leaders and members of the church do uh, teach that or say it that way. I think we also could go back to the talk by uh, Ezra Tapp Benson, The 14 Fundamentals of a Prophet, where he essentially shares that one of the points is that the prophet will never lead the church astray. And I think taking all these things in combination, members tend to draw this conclusion that prophets and apostles are stating that they are infallible and that they will essentially, uh, anything that comes out of their mouth is true. And that's not the case. That's absolutely not the case. So as long as members of the church can understand that the church does not claim, nor does the prophet or apostles claim that anything they do is exactly what the Lord would have them do, and that essentially if a prophet or apostle says something, 
one still must rely on the confirmation from the Holy Spirit to know of those things that they should do. Now, we have to be careful because this accountability doesn't place uh, responsibility on the prophet and apostle. It places responsibility on each of us that when a leader of the church stands up and says something, even if we were to say a bishop, a stake president, uh, but especially when we're talking a prophet or an apostle, when they say something and it differs from what our point of view is, then we have a responsibility to go back and ask Heavenly Father and to get a confirmation from the Holy Spirit one way or the other on on what it was that was said. And so there are plenty of examples of leaders in the church saying something that was their opinion and that was wrong. And one example would be is one of the issues that people struggle with as they're struggling with their faith in the church's history and theology is some of the leaders in the past, their stance on uh, all worthy males receiving the priesthood prior to the 1978 revelation and some of the things that were said with that. And so I think we just have to, to recognize that as much as those who are critics of the church want to set up this straw man that we believe that the leaders of the church are infallible, that's not true. And when we come to an understanding that that's not the case, it eliminates so many of the challenges that that we might encounter to our testimony. Another one that kind of ties into that is that the mistakes by leaders in this dispensation are independent to this dispensation. In other words, that critics like to point out the mistakes that leaders have made, and they want to make this a big deal. And we tend to have this idea that all the prophets in the past were these very, very close to perfect men who didn't make mistakes. And yet that's not the case at all. So I think uh, I think some of the examples we could use to describe that would be Abraham being dishonest about his relationship to, to Sarah, uh, to his wife. Um, when they went into Egypt, we also would find that Moses killing the Egyptian prior to his call as a prophet, and some of these other uh, things that, that have happened to leaders in the past. Um, Jonah refusing to go prophesy uh, as the Lord had directed him, refusing to go call people to repentance as the Lord had directed the, uh, him. And so we see prophets who are rebellious, who break the Ten Commandments, who... Uh, tend to do things that we would on the surface say, well, what, what's that all about? That doesn't seem right. And so again, we have to recognize that everybody in every dispensation who's ever lived will sin with the exception of the Savior Jesus Christ. The other thing that we tend to find is that critics of the LDS Church point out what they perceive as uh, problems within the LDS faith. And we tend to walk away with this feeling that this severe this severe trouble of finding difficult issues within the LDS church is independent to the LDS faith. That in other words, this kind of severe faith crisis that some Latter-day Saints find themselves in, myself included at one time, that we tend to feel like this is just a, uh, a thing that happens within the LDS church. And that's not the case at all. One of the things that we can do is you could go online and research Fowler's stages of faith. 
there was a podcast I did some time ago on that. And you'll find that throughout all of uh, human history, really, uh, as recorded history, when we talk about religion and talk about beliefs, there are examples of people in every faith who find that the things that their religion uh, teaches or stands up for, that there may be some, that everything may not be just black and white as they thought it was, that their perception may need some adjustment. And sometimes when that happens, people will struggle with holding on to belief. And I think we need to come to a conclusion that this is not a paradigm found only within the LDS faith, that this is something that happens to each of us as humans as our as our mind begins to be able to wrap itself around bigger ideas and to understand uh, a deeper level of thinking things out. And when that happens, the things we used to hold on to, which as we go through, these assumptions fall right into that category. When we begin to, to hold these assumptions to start off with and then begin to kind of transform them or transcend them to a better way of thinking about things, we tend to, to find that... Uh, a struggle within our faith sometimes occurs. So, moving on. The next one I wanted to talk about was that uh, that prophets and apostles get their marching orders directly from the Savior on a regular basis. And so when I joined the church and I was taught what a prophet was, and it was explained to me the purpose of prophets and apostles, I had this image in my head that every morning that uh, President Hinckley and the Apostles woke up, the Savior would show up in their room and give them their marching orders for the day. And so that would essentially leave that everything they did that day was was they were called upon to do by our Heavenly Father and His Son. And it tends to kind of make sense, right? We We read in the scriptures about prophets speaking to God. But yet, when we really consider the story, we're probably getting these rare occasions where it happens. And in general, I don't think it's a fair um, supposition to make that prophets and apostles speak directly to the Lord Jesus Christ on a regular basis. Now, that doesn't mean to me that they're not special witnesses that they claim to be. It doesn't mean to me that they don't ever have special experiences that are different from yours and mine with Heavenly Father, with the Savior, with the Holy Ghost. But what it does mean is we have to lower our expectation that every single thing that a prophet or apostle does that day is part of his uh, marching orders to what the Savior has directed him to do. And that allows a lot more flexibility for them to also be sharing their opinions at times, to be doing their own things that have nothing to do with the gospel, to essentially not hold them to a bar or a standard that really doesn't exist. We, uh, we find in the Book of Mormon in the New Testament these few occasions, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus where he sees the living, the living Christ. And we have this assumption that all prophets and apostles have this experience and have it often. And I think that that's an unfair assumption to make. I think we think of those special stories in the scriptures as the norm. And we have those stories within our dispensation too. Even outside of the prophet Joseph Smith, we've had prophets who have seen 
the Savior in the temple. We've had prophets who have received uh, church policy-changing revelation, things that have added to uh, the doctrines as we understand them. And so those things happen, but perhaps looking at the scriptures and the, the amount of time they cover and how consolidated they are, we might begin to recognize that these are not everyday occurrences. The next one I want to discuss was the Book of Mormon. One of the assumptions is that when we call the Book of Mormon the most correct book on earth, that essentially its grammar and spelling and all of those things has to be the most correct book on earth. And that, the critics seem to love to point this out. They want to point out how many grammatical changes the Book of Mormon has gone through, how many spelling errors it had, how many uh, problems with, with punctuation were contained in the, uh, the original printing of the Book of Mormon and as it's gone from edition to edition, the changes that have been made. And we have to be really careful here because we do believe that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth, but we have to know what that means by the most correct book. So, for example, in the Book of Mormon, in the very front pages, we are given a warning by Mormon that there might perhaps be mistakes contained therein and there in the book, and they're not the mistakes of God, but rather Mormon's mistakes. And we could even extend that further and say perhaps Joseph Smith's mistakes in in working through that translation. We have this idea that prophets that God stands next to a prophet and tells them exactly what to write down as scripture and then when the translation took place that God is speaking directly into Joseph's ear and telling him exactly what to write but that's not what we find in in the facts or in the history Brigham Young made the comment that if anybody else had been the translator for the Book of Mormon we might have gotten a much different um not necessarily a different story, but a much different detail to the story. In other words, rather than using uh, certain words to describe what's going on, perhaps another translator would have used a different word to describe that same action or same item. And so we see, too, that the Book of Mormon 1 excuses itself from mistakes and admits that it might contain some. We also find that Brigham Young mentioning that essentially any translator who did it would have caused the book to have a slightly different look than it did. And so what does it mean then to have the most correct book? And it would it would seem to me that to say that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth would lead one to come to this conclusion, that when it comes to teaching in the most clear purity about the atonement and about the doctrine of Christ... The Book of Mormon is second to none. And I think if one will open the Book of Mormon and look through it and read it, one will find that those issues, that the way the atonement is spoken of and taught, the way the doctrine of Christ is explained, the way other principles such as grace and mercy, sanctification, those types of things are talked about, that the Book of Mormon is absolutely uh, crystal clear on compared to other books of scripture and other uh, written works within the history of mankind. The, the next assumption would be viewing all rules in the gospel as black and white. And so we've talked about this a couple times in other podcasts, but we seem to have this naive thought, for instance, with the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not lie. And so we, in our head, 
come to this conclusion that lying is absolutely black and white, that any lying is wrong, and that we should always tell the truth all the time and tell the whole truth. And in most cases, that's true. And so then in some rare instances where that commandment gets kind of, at least to our surface understanding, broken, we then fail to realize that the world is not set up black and white, and that even Heavenly Father, in His giving of these commandments, allows for, at times, these things not to happen, uh, not to be held to the standard which it originally sounds like they are. So let me give some examples. The, the obvious one is Nephi murdering Laban. Thou shalt not murder. Murder is black and white. You don't do that. And yet here is an angel commanding Nephi to do this. We look at Moses when he killed the Egyptian. Um, and we can see in that story the, the reasoning for doing so and the justification for it. But we can even break it down simpler than that because those two examples imply that that perhaps even God commanded those things to happen. So the, so the situation I've shared before on this podcast, and I'll do it again here, I remember uh, being in a ward council once and asking everybody in the room, is lying always wrong? And a great number of the room raised their hand and said, yes, lying is always wrong. And I said, okay, let me share a story with you. I said, you're sleeping at night, and you're, you're sound asleep in your bed, and all of a sudden you hear this loud boom and you, you can tell from the sound of the noise that someone has just broken into your home. So you run over to your kid's room really quick. You jump up, you, you throw some clothes on, you run over to your room really quick, you grab your kids, you take them back over to your room and you tell them to hide underneath the bed really quietly, not say a word. All of a sudden this intruder makes his way up the stairs to your second floor he walks to your room, he glances over at the other room, notices that there's bunk beds in the room, and so he knows you've got children in the home. You can tell from his look in his eyes that his intent is absolute evil. And he looks at you and says, I know you've got children, where are they? And you then respond that they have spent the night at a friend's house. Now he did this to you at gunpoint. Does that change anything? You just lied to him. Now everybody who originally said lying is absolutely wrong, would then look at this this situation, this example, and say, oh, what? wait a minute, that changes how I think about it. I would say in this situation, lying is perfectly okay. And so I'll give one example from church history, and I'm not, I'm not saying I understand the situation. I'm not saying I know that this is the answer. I'm simply saying that this is one other way to possibly look at this situation. So we have the the saints in early church history practicing polygamy. When this revelation first comes out, Joseph and a small group of saints are implementing this principle and practicing it. When saints who are not aware of it come to Joseph and ask him about whether the church is really doing this, or when non-members in the church or even enemies of the church, asked Joseph if this pr principle is being practiced. On a couple of occasions, Joseph told them no, that essentially it was not being practiced. And many critics of the church will jump on Joseph and say, he lied. Here's your prophet, and he's lying. Shame on him. And yet, 
if we understand this paradigm of lying is not always black and white, and that in some instances, at least referring to the parent who lied about his kids underneath the bed while an intruder held him at gunpoint, we recognize that sometimes protecting somebody from them being hurt or injured or keeping somebody from doing something evil would give one uh, permission. And I want to use that that loosely. I don't want anybody to just walk around saying that that I was told on this podcast I could lie about whatever I wanted. One has to be really careful. But what I'm saying is that it's not fair for you and I to look at these situations and to say it's absolutely black and white, and this is the judgment I'm passing on them. One thing we can use to kind of describe what choices we make in this paradigm is Moroni chapter 7. Moroni 7 tells us essentially that the way to judge is this. Those things that bring us closer to Christ are approved of Christ, and those things that take us further away from him or closer to the adversary are not approved of Christ. Now, I don't know enough about everything that's going on there in that in in this early uh, practice of polygamy for me in any way shape or form in you know 200 years later 250 years later for me to be able to say hey that was that was absolutely wrong and took him further away from Christ i i don't know that so moroni 7 gives us the way to judge and again we saw other examples in the scriptures of people prophets doing things that if we judge by a black and white system would essentially put them on the wrong side of truth or goodness as well. So we got to be careful we don't do that. The next one that I wanted to speak about is what is doctrine? In other words, those who are struggling in their faith tend to feel like doctrine is this much giant, much more, uh, what's the word I want to use? It's, it's a much bigger box of things than what it actually is. And so those who struggle in their faith will hear something that a prophet or an apostle said, make the assumption that that is automatically the doctrine of the church, and therefore when they come to find out that that's not quite the way things are, all of a sudden the only conclusion they're left with uh, to to draw at is that the church essentially went astray or the church was wrong. But we have to keep in mind that even when we're talking about the prophet, any one given leader speaking his own opinion or sharing his own uh, thoughts or ideals does not constitute the doctrine of the church. So, for example, is what Brigham Young said the doctrine of the church? Is everything he stood at the pulpit and, and spoke about, is that the doctrine of the church? And most people, when they think of it that way, would say, well, well, no. So, did what Elder Bruce R. McConkie, every word that came out of his mouth, was that doctrine? Well, no. How about Spencer W. Kimball when he when he saw some uh, Native Americans and assumed that they were getting lighter in skin and felt like that was what the scripture in the Book of Mormon was speaking about would happen and then commented that he saw it occurring. Is that doctrine? Or is that just one man seeing something and sharing his opinion? So... The way I wanted to kind of answer this is the church has addressed this, I think, very well uh, recently. So if we go back to this most previous conference in the talk from the October 2012 conference, talk called Trial of Your Faith, given by Elder uh, Neil A. Anderson, 
Um, he makes this comment. He says, A few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There is an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. So I think that labels it pretty well. And then in the April 2012 conference, Elder uh, D. Todd Christofferson also talked about this this same idea. Um, He said this, he said, At the same time it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered, opinion, not meant to be official or binding for the whole church. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is a prophet only when acting as such. So when, when a prophet or an apostle or a bishop or a stake president shares with you something that differs from what has been taught throughout the church and the rest of the leaders in the church are not testifying to that principle or teaching it as well, then even though it is perhaps well thought out, well considered, that opinion is not official or binding on the whole church. And so we have to recognize that we are then free again to go consult the Holy Spirit, to not uh, to use our agency, to allow the Holy Ghost to witness to us one way or the other, and then act according to the dictates that the Spirit speaks to us. One other example of this, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a talk, an interview to PBS um, some years ago. In, in doing so, he was asked this question. The question was this, and the, and the interviewer, this is what he said. He said, I've talked to many, talked to many uh, blacks and many whites as well about the lingering folklore about why blacks couldn't have the priesthood. These are faithful Mormons who are delighted about this revelation and yet who feel something more should be said about the folklore and even possibly about the mysterious reasons for the ban itself, which was not a revelation. It was a practice. So if you could briefly address the concerns Mormons have about this folklore and what should be done. And Elder Holland gives a beautiful answer. He says, quote, One clear-cut position is that the folklore must never be perpetuated. I had to concede my earlier colleagues. They, I'm sure, in their own way, were doing the best they knew to give shape to the policy, to give context for it, to give even history to it. All I can say, however, well-intended the explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate and or wrong. It probably would have been advantageous to say nothing, to say we just don't know, and as with many religious matters, whatever was being done was done on the basis of faith at that time. But some explanations were given, and had been given for a lot of years. At the very least, there should be no effort to perpetuate those efforts, to explain why that doctrine existed, I think to the extent that I know anything about it, as one of the newer and younger ones to come along, we simply do not know why that practice, that policy, that doctrine was in place. And I think that's a beautiful answer uh, by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And so 
we see that you know this type of thing um, it, it happens a lot. Well, we'll have a discussions in Sunday school time sometimes talking about the word of wisdom, and somebody will bring up that the reason that coffee and tea are excluded from use among those of our faith is that it contains tannic acid, and then they'll go on uh, some spiel about how tannic acid is used in uh, in preserving animals and tanning hides, and maybe there's formaldehyde, and, and they'll give all these explicit reasons why we stay away from coffee and tea. And I would simply, at those times, raise my hand and say, actually, that's not the case. Our Father in Heaven has asked us to stay away from these substances, and he, up till now, has, has yet to give us any reason why. And so I think we leave it at that. And I don't think we need to feel compelled to give explanations or reasons for why God does the things he does, or why he's chosen certain times to correct, maybe, perhaps, um, folklore within our church, why he's waited as long as he has to correct something. And so we ought to just stand back, and realize that things will be done in the Lord's time. I think we certainly have a responsibility to do our part to make sure that those around us are not mistreated or abused. But within the realms of policy and doctrine, we also have to wait on the Lord uh, and allow and know that His time is not our time in sometimes correcting or advancing uh, our understanding of these things. The next one I want to talk about is that there's only one way to interpret facts. So critics of the church will take the facts that they want to around a certain issue in church history. They'll present them in the order that they want to, and they'll draw the conclusion that they want to. And that in doing that, it paints this really ugly picture of these events in church history. But, but it's not the only way to understand them. So I'll give three examples. The critics challenge the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. Now, there's the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. And there are a multitude of documents where these, these brethren testify to the truth of the things that they experienced, the things that they saw. And the critics will find one or two examples where these witnesses claim to have seen these experiences with spiritual eyes. And they'll then point out that what the witness is essentially saying is that they really didn't have this experience, that essentially they saw it in some other realm, and that it was possible that it was just in their imagination. And I don't think this is fair at all. And I'll give a personal example. When I read the Book of Mormon while investigating the church and prayed about it, I received what I can only describe as one of the most marvelous experiences I've ever enjoyed in my life where the Holy Ghost, through a, a supernatural experience, shared with me that the Book of Mormon was true and that the principles the missionaries were teaching me were true. And the best way I can explain it would be to kind of go along those same lines and say that I saw this experience with spiritual eyes. In other words... There was someone else in the room with me that day, my, my girlfriend, who eventually became my wife, and she didn't ex see what I saw, she didn't experience what I experienced, but she could tell something was going on. And the only way I see to explain it would be as if anybody else was in the room, they would not have, ex have saw or experienced what I did. It was just for me. And it was 
not something in the physical world in a way that that others would have been clear on what was going on. So the best way I can describe it is to say I saw it with my spiritual eyes. We also find a contradiction in the New Testament when Paul's on the road to Damascus, that there are those with him. And while the experience is shared differently in the two different accounts, we recognize that those who were with him did not experience uh, this spiritual manifestation the same way that Paul did. And so is it possible to say that Paul saw or heard with his spiritual eyes and ears? I think that's fair. Another example is in the uh, critical issue of treasure digging. Joseph Smith, there are some documents early on that indicate that Joseph Smith was involved in a practice called uh, treasure digging, uh, which essentially would be described as him using his seer stone to help others find lost and buried treasure. And so the critics will take the couple of documents that we have that share that this is what Joseph is doing, and they will perpetuate that to say essentially that Joseph Smith was heavily involved in this practice for a very long time, and that it takes away from his credibility of becoming a prophet later on. But I don't necessarily take the documents to mean that. I take that exact same evidence, and here's the conclusion I draw. I believe Joseph Smith Sr. was involved in the practice of treasure digging or doing things that would come off to us as being supernatural. Joseph Smith Jr., on the other hand, I believe did find a seer stone while digging a well with Willard Chase. I believe that somehow Heavenly Father allowed him to have a gift through that seer stone in order to help people in the town find things that they had lost, that in becoming well known for this gift that he had, that people, that he essentially began to become prominent for this gift, and that people close by and even some further away were beginning to hear of this gift that young Joseph Smith Jr. had, one of those being Josiah Stoll, who, thinking that there was a treasure or a silver mine buried near his home, then called upon Joseph Smith Jr. to use his gift to assist him in finding this buried treasure. Joseph did help him, and after some time said, this isn't working, let's quit this. This is not going to be fruitful. So there are other ways to understand the facts. Now, I'm not saying at all the way I see things is correct. I'm simply saying that one can take the evidence and draw multiple conclusions, and that's the conclusion I've drawn. We do have some evidence that Joseph used his ability to help neighbors find lost items. So, for instance, if if John Smith would come to Joseph and say, hey, I, I lost a... Uh, a gun, a gun in my home that I value and treasure because my grandfather gave it to me. And I've lost that item and I don't know what happened to it. And Joseph would look into the seer stone and would then tell John that John's gun uh, was lost in the woods and it was near the big oak tree uh, two miles in. And then John would go find it. We also know that from the trial, when Joseph Smith was taken before a court of law, and accused of treasure digging, that Josiah Stoll, even after 
this whole operation went south, Josiah testified that Joseph Smith did have a real ability. And so we need to be careful on what conclusions we draw. The third one is this, the kinderhook plates. Uh, for those who are unaware, Joseph uh, came in contact with a small set of plates that he began to try and translate. And according to what evidence we have, at least translated what he thought within about one sentence of what was written on these plates. We come to find out later that plates were fraudulent, that some non-Mormons had fabricated them, buried them, and then set up the Mormons to be able to find them and then uh, proposition Joseph Smith to translate them. The critics will say that Joseph essentially provided a false translation because these are fraudulent plates. There is no real account written on them. And that essentially, because he did so, he must then be a false prophet. This isn't the only conclusion you can draw. There's a gentleman by the name of Don Bradley, member of the church, who's done some research on this. And his conclusion was that Joseph attempted to do a, a real translation, not a, not a translation by the gift and power in God, as the Book of, Mormon was done, Book of Mormon was done, but rather to translate it as we would translate things today. And so Joseph, looking on these characters on the plates, compared them with uh, a, some information he had while translating the book of, I believe, Abraham or book of Moses, and then tried to use some of this information to then stretch over to these plates. He found a couple of characters on these kinderhook plates that matched up extremely closely to th other things that he was working on. So he made some assumptions that this is what these must be talking about. This actually has a lot of credibility because after translating essentially this one sentence, we find nothing more in the history of the church of Joseph translating these kinderhook plates, that essentially he gave up on them, that he quit. He didn't go any further. Now, if he's essentially taking these plates and providing a false translation pretending to use the gift and power of God, it would make sense that he would complete the translation, thereby leading more credibility to him being a prophet and having the ability to do so. But for some reason, he quits. He, he essentially just stops working with these kinderhook plates, which would lead credibility to the fact that he couldn't go any further with them, that essentially this was not working out the way he thought it would, and that essentially he had to walk away because the translation was not was not working, was not proceeding, was not moving forward. And so he called it quits on those. And so that's three examples of ways that we can we can change our assumptions or expectations of these difficult issues uh, in the gospel. I hope this podcast was a benefit to those who uh, perhaps are struggling in understanding issues within the church. Just a personal note. I understood the issues that cause difficulty early on in my time in the church. But what I never really did change along the way was the assumptions and expectations that I held. In other words, I understood the book of Abraham problems. I understood that Joseph used a seer stone for translating. I understood early on the argument about DNA but I held on to some of these false assumptions and expectations, and they were what really caused me my faith crisis. In other words, I was perfectly able 
to handle the information. What I was unable to do was to get myself out of a linear black and white thinking and begin to move into deeper ways to think about things. That once I corrected my assumptions and realized that the world worked in a different manner than I, I saw or viewed it, then all of a sudden I would be able to come out of my faith crisis and be in a place where I could handle uncertainty and not not get too excited about that. That I was able to deal with it and and move on and still hold a faithful perspective. I hope that that helps you to do so as well. Th- again, thank you for joining us. Uh, glad to have you with us today for this episode of Mormon Discussion. False assumptions and expectations that lead to faith crisis. And I hope that you have a blessed day. And may the Lord warm your shoulders. Thank Come you. Come of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some Seal it, seal it for